Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's Monday, March 5th, and we're talking about investing in international banks. I'm your host, Michael Douglas, and I'm joined by Matt Frankel. Now, folks who've been listening for a little while know that we've done, we did kind of a three-part series on the big American banks. Uh, we started with the investment banks, then we went to the universal banks, and then we ended with the commercial banks. Well, now, with that as kind of a background and using the same framework that we've been using to approach banks, let's talk a little bit about international banks. Now, I guess the first thing we should note here is that international banks, in a lot of ways, are pretty similar to U.S.-based banks, you know. Generally speaking, they lend out money. <laughs> um, no, they take in money as deposits. They lend it out at a higher rate, and that's how they make their money. Um, and they uh, have largely the same valuation metrics as U.S. banks too. Yeah, um, just like U.S. banks, you can find foreign banks that are you know purely commercial banks, investment banks, universal banks, kind of like so our three-part series we just did. Um, and you use kind of the same valuation metrics to evaluate them. Uh, price to tangible book is always one of our favorites when it comes to banks. Again, don't put too much stock into the price to earnings ratio with a bank. Um, the price to tangible book combined with profitability metrics such as return on assets, return on equity, which, by the way, you want to see about 1% and 10%, give or take on those, respectively. Uh, efficiency ratio, when you put those metrics together, it kind of gives you a good picture of what you're buying for your money. Yeah, and uh, I'll, I'll just sort of double underline efficiency ratio as just such a useful way to understand really how the bank, really how effective the bank is at making sure that that sort of top line revenue flows down to the bottom line. Um, of course, Foreign banks, international banks, also have some differences from the U.S. And one of them that we should note is that you know every country has a somewhat different framework for how they approach banking, and so there's a lot of diversity out there. So it's very hard to paint sort of with a broad brushstroke, right? But there are a couple things we can keep in mind. One of which is they aren't regulated by the Fed, and so usually that means they have a little bit more control over their own dividend policy. Yeah, just they're, they kind of make their own capital plans. Uh, just for a like, couple sentences of background, in the U.S., banks have to submit to what are called the stress tests every year and submit a capital plan, which is what they intend to do with their, their profits, uh, including dividends, share buybacks. And the Fed has to approve this, um, essentially saying that if a bank gave X amount of dividends and bought back X amount of shares, that under a worst-case scenario, they would still be just fine capital-wise. Um, and with foreign banks, you generally don't have that. Um, like Michael said, different countries have different regulations, but generally foreign banks get to set their own dividend policies, which leads to better dividend stocks. Um, anyone who focuses on income for investments generally doesn't like the U.S. banks because their dividends are stuck at 1% or 2% mm -hmm. right now. Mm -hmm. But in the case of foreign banks, one of my favorites that I'm going to talk about quite a bit in this episode is that uh, Toronto Dominion Bank, which most Americans know as TD Bank, um, they pay close to 4%. The other major Canadian banks pay around 4%. Other major international banks like Credit Suisse, for example, pays around 4%. So for income investors, the fact that these foreign banks are allowed to set their own dividend policies for the most part um, is kind of a nice mm -hmm. little feature that could you know, add some more income to your portfolio and still give you exposure to the banking sector. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, uh, of course, there are a few other things we should keep in mind. One of the big ones being that, as I noted earlier, these are often headquartered in very different countries with very different currencies. <laughs> and currency fluctuation can be a big thing and can make a really big difference to U.S. investors as they're approaching, say, a bank that's based in you know, the UK versus one that's based in Canada. I mean, there are just very different things going on geopolitically with those two countries right now, and it's something you have to consider. Yeah, definitely. Um, with TD, um, just going back to their example, if you look at a chart of TD's dividend over the years, you might at first glance think that they change their dividend every day. But their dividend is paid out in Canadian dollars, which have fluctuated quite significantly over the past few years in regard in, re, in relation to the U.S. dollars. Uh, just to give you a statistic, over the past five years, um, the U.S. dollar has strengthened by more than 22% against the Canadian dollar which has had big implications not only for the dividend, but for the stock price as well. Right. The same holds true for other countries around the world, and which is why when you it comes to foreign banks, I generally advise sticking to the most stable countries in terms of currencies. Um, I tend to avoid emerging markets, for example, when it comes to banks. But currency fluctuations are definitely something to keep in mind, not only with dividends, but in terms of the share price as well. Your stock could drop without any other reason than you know, the U.S. dollar got stronger. Right. Well, and one of the, the sort of more underlying business things we should talk about here is that, you know, political and economic stability is a, a thing that we can assume um, in a lot of the world, but it's also something that we can't assume in a lot of the world. And um, many of these financial institutions um, operate in places that, you know, Frankly, you really don't know what's going to happen. There's a lot of political instability, and that could be a sizable issue. I, you know, I even think of like a Greece, right? I mean, had Greece defaulted, <laughs> that would have done some really interesting things to the financial system there, and would have had some big negative implications for the banks. And for some bank stocks, it did. Uh, National Bank of Greece, for example, got yeah, absolutely. Like their investors got wiped out. Yeah. Um, this and. Not just instability, but a lot of places around the world are kind of in different stages of the business cycle than we are. Mm -hmm. um, Europe, for example, is kind of a few years back when it comes to recovering from the financial crisis. So they haven't had the massive run up in bank stocks kind of like we've had. Um, and just you keep in mind, I mean, to, to kind of underline the point, they're not the U.S., Right. So keep that in mind when you're trying to choose a foreign bank and like take a few minutes to just get to know the political climate over there. Right. And one of the key things with that political climate to consider as well is the regulatory regime. You know, as you mentioned, you know, a lot of other a lot of the international banks aren't uh, subject to the same regulations as U.S. banks. Again, that makes sense. These are foreign countries. Um, but for countries that really underregulate their banks, what you could see is, yes, a bank that appears to really be knocking it out of the park on ROE and ROA, and they're just making scads of money. And that's because they're making a lot of risky loans that the moment that economy turns, really, really, really bad things start to happen. I mean, at the end of the day, for me, the key with any bank is not how it performs when it is doing well. It is how it performs when everything is going uh, very poorly. <laughs> and that's really going to be the measure of a long-term investment. Yeah, definitely. And, and fortunately for us as investors, unfortunately for people who are invested then, we got to see how a lot of these banks reacted to tough times over the past decade or so. In some cases, it was 
you know, they did pretty well, like in Canada, for example. And in some cases, like in Greece and a lot of other places in Europe, it wasn't so pretty. So kind of, I would definitely advise kind of to continue on Michael's thought, going back about 10 years and seeing how some of these banks you're considering investing in performed in 08, 09, and in the years since. Like I said, a lot of places are still a little bit behind the U.S. in terms of recovering from the financial crisis. Right. Um, now, let's. You, you've talked a little bit about TD Bank. Um, I, I, I'd love to hear just a, a full-on pitch on the bank. So why you like it? Um, I, I think for anyone who's thinking about a an international bank, it's a good place to start. And let's just kind of talk through that a little bit. Well, before I get into TD, uh, Canadian banks in general, um, there's a few good ones. Bank of Nova Scotia, Bank of Montreal, or other good ones. The ca- the Canadian banking system has just been much more well-behaved, I guess you'd say, than the American banking system. Um, American banks average a crisis every 15 years or so on average. The last Canadian banking crisis was in 1839. So it's just a much more stable system. Um, The banks just behave better on their own. Um, But moving on from that, uh, TD, I love out of the three for its kind of dual kind of diversification and dual kind of dual threat, I guess you would say. They're one of the leading banks in Canada, and they have a growing U.S. presence. For people listening on the West Coast, for example, TD is really not there yet. But in a lot of markets on the East Coast, they've built up a dominant presence. Uh, New York City, for example, they're one of the top three by market share there. Um, And they've done it kind of in a way that's different than a lot of U.S. banks, which are you know, closing branches and trying to shift everything away from actually interacting with people to TD prides itself as being America's most convenient bank, which they picked up that title from one of the companies they acquired, but they keep their branches open late. They keep their open them open on weekends, Sundays, even in a lot of cases. Um, I remember I used to have TD bank in New Jersey and I could deposit, go through a drive through and deposit a check with a person at 10 p.m. in certain locations. So just a real customer-centric business model. And not only that, they have some of the best asset quality of any bank. They have one of the best credit ratings in banking. Um, if you know credit ratings, S&P rates them as uh, AA negative, AA minus. Um, and they're just all around just great asset quality, great management, can set their own dividend policy. Like I said, they pay about 4%. They've paid dividends every year since before the Civil War. People make such a big deal over the dividend aristocrats, which have increased their dividends for 25 consecutive years. TD has has paid dividends since 1858 and has increased their dividend for much of that time um, over the past couple decades by more than 10% a year. So when you compare that to the track record of a lot of U.S. banks, European banks, it just looks so much better from a standpoint of an investor who likes stability. Yeah, I think that is uh, a a good point and makes a lot of sense. And I mean, certainly when I think about um, international banks, I'm not currently invested in any, but um, you know, when we were talking kind of before the episode, uh, Matt was talking to me about Toronto Dominion Bank, and I said, you know, I need to spend a little bit more time looking at them and vetting them because while I tend to be skeptical of um, 
the American big banks because I just don't think there's anything that really marks any of them out from the others in terms of ability to really long-term seize market share and and really kind of build on past success and hopefully you know outperform the market. That's my goal. Hopefully, that's a lot of <laughs> a lot of investors' goals. Um, I think that if TD is doing such a good job of growing market share, and they're doing so in a responsible manner, and that's kind of one of the key things I'm going to need to dig in on, then that is a pretty darn good good place to start when considering international banks. And certainly, I mean, international exposure belongs in a lot of portfolios. It's um, it can be um, a a Riskier part of the portfolio in some cases, although you know perhaps with a, a large cap from Canada, not so much. Um, but uh, it certainly makes sense to not be a hundred percent correlated with the U.S. economy, but to also be elsewhere. Yeah, and on, on that note, that if you were invested in foreign banks in two thousand eight, two thousand nine, you did much much better than if you were invested in U.S. banks. Right. So, th- so that's kind of the diversification you're you're referring to. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, folks, that's it for this week's financial show. Questions, comments, you can always reach us at industryfocus.fool.com. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. The show is produced by Austin Morgan. For Matt Frankel, I'm Michael Douglas. Thanks for listening, and Fool on. 